This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and this week I'm talking with drummer, percussionist, and educator Brandon Draper. I've known Brandon for about 15 years. He made Kansas City his home a few years after I did, and he's been there ever since. On the KC scene, he's played everything from straight-ahead jazz to electronica to hip-hop to Turkish music, often leading the charge to expand the city's musical palette. On a national level, he has performed with an equally varied list of acts including Particle, Quixotic, Otmar Liebert, and Kevin Hayes. He teaches drum set at the University of Kansas, as well as a new curriculum in music business and entrepreneurship, and is currently on tour with Drum Safari, a musical education program that he developed with his wife, Taryn. We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. So Brandon is just one of those brain-on-fire people. The range of music and drumming that he's gotten interested in and good at over the years is as wide and varied as anyone I know. He's just always immersing and versing himself in some drumming concept or artist catalog or teaching idea or compositional rabbit hole or obscure little hand drum technique. I honestly don't know when he sleeps. I think there might be two of him. I feel like he's forgotten about more music than most of us have really dug into. So get ready. Here comes Brandon Draper. How's Iowa City treating you? Have you been to Iowa City? I think I have. Is it is it one of the quad cities? I don't know what that means. I, there's there's like four cities in Iowa that are just sort of like grouped together in a square, and and the Iowans refer them uh, collectively as as the quad cities. But I don't remember which cities they are. Uh, I don't know if I've been well, to now, Iowa City. Now I'm finding out. Um, Iowa City is Iowa University, University of Iowa. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Dan Moore, 
my brain just goes to venues and who is the head of percussion in every city. <laughs> like it just naturally. That's that's um, all that matters. <laughs> and where's the coffee? Exactly. <laughs> Cheers. Salud. Cheers. <laughs> yeah, the uh it doesn't look like it. It looks like it's Davenport. Right. Bet Bettenfort, Rock Island, Moline. I don't know anything about those places, but Iowa City's cool. It's like uh it's kind of like Lawrence. Okay, cool. Yeah, we're going to talk about Lawrence uh, in a bit here. Yeah, I went through. I went through. I it was was not Iowa City. We might have hit there too, but like we did the Quad Cities when I was like twenty two. I did this weird little week or two week run with uh, Jack Morgan and the Russ Morgan Orchestra, which is like a super old school swing band. Russ Morgan was the guy that wrote "You're Nobody Till Somebody Loves You." And he was a trombonist and band leader. And I, you know, I think that song just made him and, you know, subsequent, subsequent generations pretty wealthy. So his son, Jack Morgan, oh, wow. his son, Jack Morgan, who was also a trombonist and singer was like continuing to lead the band. And I got thrown into that band when I was 22 in like, I was still at ball state and Larry McWilliams, the jazz director, like recommended me for that gig. I was the youngest guy in the band by like 30 years, except for the bassist who I roomed with and who was uh, snorting rails off of the night table between our beds. So that, <laughs> I did the guy Lombardo orchestra oh, wow. in new, in new Mexico. And, I may be completely mistaken, but I think that the guy that was leading the band at the time maybe lived in Las Cruces, huh. and that and that's why it happened there. But I went to this thing. It was it was a USO flashback gig. Okay, uh -huh. so everyone is they are living World War II veterans, and they dress up in full outfits. And they go to this dance where I'm the young guy, just like you, you know, in that same situation. And we're playing the Guy Lombardo book from 1940s. <laughs> and and the whole place is decorated like a mess hall where a dance would have happened. Oh, wow. In Germany and right. France. Right. Wow. And so, and so the best part of the whole gig, the best part of the story, they call it cha-cha. Now, I have just moved to New Mexico, and I'm studying with Cesar Bobole and um, the Quinones family, you know, Papa Tony Quinones and uh, Arnaldo Acosta, like all these really fantastic drummers that know the tradition. And so they call it cha-cha, and so I'm playing a cha-cha. The band leader turns around and yells at me, no, ballroom cha-cha. <laughs> So instead of like that's like a legit cha cha ballroom cha cha I guess is da 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 they move the cha 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 up one beat and I guess that made it easier to dance to right right because the steps are like slow slow quick 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 slow slow quick 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 oh my god so yeah like you you and I have New Mexico in common. Um, but I was, I was trying to remember and I can't remember, um, uh, how and, and why and when exactly you ended up, uh, in New Mexico. Cause it was after I left, like I, I was out of there when I was like 20. 
Um, and then, I, you know, we found out later when we actually knew each other that you were there after me. I got there in 01. Yeah, so it was literally the year after I left. Oh, wow. So spring of 01, you left? Uh, fall of 2000, I left. Okay, wow. Yeah. So we got there fall 2001. And uh, yeah, new, I, I, I think I probably, I think I may have heard about you, but then it wasn't until I moved to Kansas City before I moved to Kansas City, I was researching all the different musicians and it was like, oh, here's a guy from Santa Fe. I got to hook up. Right. So. Right. What brought you to yeah, New man. Mexico? Did you go to grad school there after me? Yeah. So I went to um, I went to Bethany Lutheran College, this tiny, tiny little college in, this, in central Kansas. And the backstory on that is that when I was born, before I was born, like two months before I was born... Okay, this is going to be a long story. I'll make it quick. <laughs> My dad is a Hammond organ B3 blues artist, and right. he, was living, he was living like right outside of Boston, and he was working in a, a recording studio, and then he was also doing some construction, and that was just a really common thing, you know, labor gig still to this day, you know, like a part-time labor gig and being a musician. And so he did that for a couple of years, and then they moved back to Salina, Kansas, and my mom was pregnant with me in 1978 and dad got a call from the studio in Boston and it was, uh, it was his friend and he said, Hey Paul, this is not a joke. I'm going to put Keith Richards on the line. They've been listening to some of your tapes. So dad gets, so Keith Richards invites dad to come out to Boston and have a jam and they were auditioning keyboard players and, I was going to be born in two months and dad was just like, this is a great opportunity. I can't, it's just not, I'm not, you know, he, he, he decided to, to be my dad. Well, at that time, dad was playing with this really great drummer named Dean Kranzler. Dean was the professor at Fort Hayes state, Bethany college, all these other places. Dean actually had a connection to UMKC. Also, he studied with, um, uh, Charmaine, is yeah, that her name? The, yeah, yeah. The, the rock star of UMKC. And so Dean was a student of Mitch Markovich. If you look up, if you Google search Mitch Markovich, you're going to see Dean's name. He's like the foremost student of Markovich. So rudimental snare drum champion, like 65, 66, 67. Yeah. Any, anyway, so I studied with Dean from age five to college and then when i auditioned at different colleges it was just glaring it was so obvious that bethany was going to be the right choice because i was given a I, I had my own studio i didn't have to share equipment i had 24 hour access to a room and i was a hermit man I, I mean i'm seven eight hours a day since age five or six mm -hmm. you know i just i didn't really care so much about college I wanted a room I could practice. And so I stayed studying with Dean, finished the undergrad. I looked around. I auditioned at Youngstown State. Uh, Glenn Shafts, the percussion instructor there, and they had just won multiple downbeat awards for Afro-Cuban ensembles. And I auditioned at George Mason University, and I auditioned at uh, UNM in Albuquerque. And those three had assistantship 
potential and I really didn't have the money. Um, I also was accepted to Cal Arts, oh, and wow. I talked on the I, I talked on the phone with John Bergamo, and yeah. I almost I mean I, I I almost couldn't talk because I was a student of Glenn Velez, and I that's where I got all my frame drum techniques. And um, Bergamo is like the other father of frame drum in yeah. this country. So, but then I looked at the numbers, and it was just completely not possible to move to. California and afford to go to school. So I didn't get to go there. Well, when I auditioned at UNM, Scott Nay plays frame drum and Darbuka and I just hit it off with him right away. And so, um, and the other thing, Zach, you know, this just from growing up there, I walked out of the, the music building and looked up at the Sandia peak. And I was like, so I get a look at that every day yeah. if I come to school here. And yeah. in my backyard was a wheat field, right? you know? <laughs> so, so that was the deal. And then I, I wrote for the drum line and directed the drum line. Mm -hmm. And um, that was a total trip. I, I learned so much during that. What, one thing that Scott taught me was you don't have to outplay your students. Hmm. And it's such a it's such a simple concept. <laughs> it's so simple. But I had these kids that could totally play me under the table that were, you know, doing Blue Devils in the summer, Santa right. Clara Vanguard. I mean, there were there were core kids. And I was like, Scott, I can't keep up with the kids. And he's like, you don't have to play, Brandon. You just teach them like it's about directing. And so I, I learned a ton with that kind of, you know, and I grew up with a teacher like Dean who came from Mitch Markovich. I mean, rudimental drumming was so much a, a part of my upbringing that I had a blast, but yeah, that was the UNM story. And that's right. how we got there. It's an interesting point about teaching because like, um, especially with drumline, I, I feel like, you know, at a, you know, at a collegiate level, everybody's got their technique together. You're not having to direct them in that way. And, and you're, you know, your job is, to get music out of them and to get cohesiveness out of them. And, yeah. uh, you know, that doesn't require you to pick up sticks and walk up to the center snare and be like, no, it's like this. Well, and I, and, and that's where I came from, you know, coaching high schools, you, you kind of have to do that sometimes. Right. Yeah. A lot. You know, middle schools, <laughs> it, you know, some, and then even in, you know, just to kind of reassert, like, there's a reason why I'm the one in charge guys, let's stop talking and let's work, you know, right. More, you know, refocus kind of thing. I remember another thing, Zach, we had a mutual friend because you went to Ball State. Right. And there's a, there was a pretty heavy drumline guy in Albuquerque that also went to Ball State and told me about you. I cannot remember his name. Mark Coulomb. That's who it was. Yep. Yeah. So, so when I moved, he was starting to do some different things and there were vacancies uh, for teaching drumline. So I took over the Manzano drumline, the El Dorado high school drumline that actually Manzano was like on a Tuesday, Thursday morning. And then El Dorado was like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Look at that. Oh and, Lord. Um, so, so I, I got up early and did both high school drum lines plus the college drum line. Oh my God. And, uh, <laughs> How did you have was, time for anything other than drum line during grad school? All I did was drums, man. I, I, it was, you know, I'd be done by nine, go to campus, go to a 
you know, have a, have a class and then practice. I, you know, I think I went to bed around midnight every night wow. after, you know, yeah. my, my wife was teaching, um, elementary music those first couple of years. Yeah. The first two years, grad school. I don't remember the one thing I, <laughs> the one thing I do remember is we did, uh, we, we were, we got in for the Wednesday PASIC, um, and back then it was the Wednesday was more of a new music, contemporary music focus. And we got to do John Cage's third construction and it was the graduate ensemble. And we were coached by Chris Schultes. Oh, wow. Yeah. The and Scott's predecessor. Chris, yeah. And talk about, I mean, all of his former students were like, he's so scary good well he's also one of the foremost john cage scholars yeah in the in the world so he coached us and i remember being in some of those coaching uh ensemble things and some of the things he said it, it was just i i was like okay this is the deep end i am really in the deep end he wants me to do it like that i don't know if i can do it but i just have to figure out how you yeah. know and so then we go to pay we go to PASIC. And Nexus walks in the back of the room right before we start playing. God, I haven't heard and, that name in a long time. Shit. Well, and for folks that are listening, Nexus is like the foremost percussion ensemble of kind of our back when we were in school. Yeah. And and they have the best at that time. They had like the recordings of John Cage stuff. Yeah. And, I mean, for the for, you know, the the last what 35 years of the 20th century i mean nexus was yeah. nexus was to percussion ensemble what weather report was to fusion like just right right the ogs um yeah yeah man <laughs> so, so they, and, they walked and, in and like, now, right before you start they walked in the back room they walked into the back and i just kind of blacked out i mean i played <laughs> i was there right i played the part we have a recording of it um uh, I've I've got the recording. It's it really. I mean, I I learned how to effortlessly float with fives, you know, because yeah. that particular piece there's there's a lot of five five group patterns, but it's not all five notes. There's rests and things. So right. you know, one two three four five, one two three four five. Uh, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. Super accessible being, to the lay listener. Uh, <laughs> Well, and for a jazz drummer, it was a gold mine. Yeah, you know, it was yeah, like, yeah. oh wow, I'm starting to get really get these things together to to be more effortless. So like, I haven't been to those in a while. Yeah, but. I haven't been to a PASIC in a long, long time, and I should uh, probably get back there. It'd be good to you know have a presence there with the podcast at some point. Um, we just we just got totally. we just got done doing the Music City Drum Show, which was super cool. Um, Nashville. Yeah, yeah, that thing's that thing's taken off. Um, not 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 as big as Basic yet, but definitely, it's good. I think it's gonna be a thing. And I were younger and uh, right out of college. We were you and I both were creating opportunities, creating new bands. Um, you know, I remember the ten string 
trio. Right. I was going to say you you more than me. I I created one. You created a few. <laughs> well, yeah, well, but but we back then we were hustling and finding right. new things right. and we were doing it. Some of those places closed, um some new places opened over the past year. Things have just started open. I mean, I am not kidding. I don't pay attention to everything going on on social media, but it seems like almost every week I'm seeing a concert announcement and I'm like, where's that place? <laughs> and it's, it's a new, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. um, so I think, so I think musically it's on the rise. Big drum companies are there. That's pretty cool. Um, it's just gonna the you know we can talk about KU at some point, but that's a whole other deal. That program is just blowing up. Well, yeah, we so I, we, I, uh, I think- we were talking about you know our experience at UNM and um, you know just kind of uh, the grad school experience and and percussion ensemble and all that. Um, like you are very much a, a creature of you know collegiate percussion and collegiate jazz and and a collegiate music program you've you know you've attended a couple you've taught at a couple you still teach at one um and you know i want to talk about ku specifically um but i also just want to hear your perspective about because i you know there (laughs) there's been no small amount of um college bashing on this podcast and some of it has come from me (laughs) Um, Oh, totally. Yeah. You know, just just the fact that um, the idea of college uh, in general is not for every drummer. And if it is going to be for you, you've got to kind of be intentional about finding the right program that aligns with your goals and your personality. And um, and because I don't feel like I did a, a great job of that while I was younger, I didn't get as much out of my college experience as as I perhaps could have. Um, I think I, I I ended up getting that good experience during my last couple of years at UMKC because I knew who I was. I knew who I wanted. Mm-hmm. I knew what I wanted. And um, you know, I kind of put myself in, in Bobby's hands in the jazz department there. Um, but you know what, like, what is your perspective on the, um, just the landscape of college music these days? I know that's kind of a big subject, but how do you, how do you, uh, think about it? I'm so glad you brought this up because this is like my mission in life and the whole reason why I got into teaching. Um, I'm sorry. I don't, I'm just telling the truth. I experienced a few professors that were not good. Yeah. I think everybody does. I I experienced some teachers uh, just being art centric and a musician and in theater and, and doing all that in high school and middle school. It was a very much like sports are the most important thing. So I kind of had a chip on my shoulder. Now, the background, and I, I think this is important just from my perspective. My dad is this world-class musician, that, is, and he's one of the most humble people you'll ever meet. I mean, he still to this day, we're doing a gig with, um, you know, we have a band in Kansas City that we call the Draper Family Band, and it's Rich Wheeler, Marcus Lewis, um, DeAndre Manning plays bass. There's also uh, other bass players in different situations. Rick Willoughby, nice. uh, one of your besties. Yeah. Um, so like th- it's a it's like an all star cast, and um, Eddie Moore plays second keys. Oh, shit. Anyway, th- even just recently, Dad was like, "Man, I don't know if I can hang with these guys." And I'm like, 
he if you've heard him you'll 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 know i mean he's he's a monster yeah it, it's not about how much more you know now the reason why my dad has those thoughts sometimes is when he was in college it was after vietnam and he was already doing jimmy smith kind of stuff like his hands just flew and and i don't want to name the school but it was in central kansas and he went on a scholarship and the piano teacher told him that that was all a complete waste of time. It was the stereotypical, like the student is probably threatening the teacher because they've got this natural ability and the teacher is going to use the one thing that they have the most control over, uh, pedagogically, right. you know, let's let, and so for, and let's just say that that is, you know, Mozart who, who's amazing. There's no, Mozart's not better than something else. It's different. It's another crayon. So anyway, dad went through that. I kind of heard that growing up. I had a ridiculous experience with my teacher, Dean Kranzler. He still to this day is just giving, giving, giving knowledge and supportive. And I even called him recently. I had a gig. I was complaining. And Dean is like my, my other dad. You know, it's like he was in bands when I was born with my pop. So I kind of got two dads. Well, I was complaining that I had to learn all this music and do all these rehearsals and it only pays this much. And so I calculated, you know, how much I was getting paid by the hour never, and I'm way never in, do that. <laughs> I'm way into music business, you know, thinking all the numbers the whole bit. Right. And, and Dean kind of paused for a second and he goes, yeah, what a great life. It sure beats mowing lawns. <laughs> and it's just like, yep, shut up, Brandon. Yeah. So, so I go to college I had the safe space of my own studio and this great teacher to get away from some of the other things. There were a few instances where I just was sitting in class calling bullshit on uh, a few of the the teachers. Just, you know, I'm and ju let's just assume I'm a punk college kid. So right. maybe they were maybe they were good, but whatever. I don't see it, Brandon. I have trouble I have yeah. trouble picturing. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so so in college there's this really awesome female percussionist named Taryn. She also went to the school to study with Dean. And it turns out we both listened to all the same music. We hit it off. And now, you know, we've been married. We've been together 25 years. Wow. And we've been married ever since. Well, we had conversations in college, Zach. She and I were, were studying all the Glenn Velez frame drum stuff together. So we, we were getting into world music. We were getting into Arthur Hull drum circle facilitation. Um, my grandmother was suffering uh, Alzheimer's um, and I had read some Mickey Hart books about listening to music that can help bring things back. Mm -hmm. um, excuse me. I, I went to uh, see my grandmother and I brought some big band albums because she had a huge collection of Glenn Miller and Woody Herm, you know, all the, all the big bands, right. um, the golden age of big bands. So I played some stuff and she kind of came back for a minute and, um, she did, she hadn't known who I was for months. Yeah. And, and she said, so are you still playing in dance bands, Brandon? And, you know, to their era, all music entertainment was dance bands. You went to dance to the band, but, um, so anyway, Taryn and I, 
I'm getting to the college education thing, yeah, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. I'm getting there. <laughs> um, you can you can say a prayer for all my college students that listen to me lecture and basically talk nonstop every class period. So um, so Taryn and I are in college. We're having these you know conversations about what we think the world is and education and music and. And we kind of started these conversations of like, we should start a program where you don't have to read music. You don't have to have any experience at all. This should be accessible to everyone. Prior to the television being invented, people got together and played music. And, you know, if you study any cultures of the world, you know, everybody is a musician. We can all play, but there's there's so much guarding in academia of like, well, you are not capable of this, you know? So, so she and I later, we started our drum safari program and that's what we're doing here. I can talk a little bit about that later, but, um, that concept kind of went into, okay, I go to UNM, I'm a grad student. Um, Scott Nay, Chris Schultes, um, uh, Glenn Coster, yeah. Um, Bill Caldwell. I mean, I had some really, really incredible teachers that didn't pretend or didn't have any sort of air of knowing more than me. Mm-hmm. They didn't, they, it, it, they really showed that this education thing is a mutual journey we're all on mm-hmm. together. And then getting to play professional gigs with those teachers. And, and not being treated like a student, you know, that, that opened some doors. And of course I went to grad school cause I was going to be a college professor. Dang it. I'm, I'm going to be just like Dean. I'm going to be like my teacher. I'm going to be a professor and I'm going to play gigs. Right. And to, you know? so to just stop you for a second, like when it comes to grad school specifically, if you're going to get a master's degree or a doctorate in music, in my mind, there are only two reasons to do that. One is one of them is if you want to teach at the collegiate level because you got to have that piece of paper. The other one is um, if you have a clear idea of what you want to achieve or learn in that program or with that professor or in that city that you feel is uh, aligned with the kind of musician that you want to become. And I think too many people go into a collegiate program, whether it's undergrad or grad school, because it's, it's just kind of the thing to do. Like it's, you know, they, they, they think that going through that portal that there's, you know, gigs on the other side, but I think another, another reason that folks might go, is just, they just want to learn. I, I, I was bad. I, I guess I was kind of surprised in, in all these years. Um, the reality is not everyone is going to go do the thing, whatever the thing is. Some people are going to go and get degrees and certificates because they really just love learning. And, and I have a few friends that have multiple degrees and they're really happy people but they just want to be in school. They just, they're, you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, that, that's something I, I really just thought, well, I've watched my teacher do it and I'm going to do this. I, and when I was little, I, I was just so determined. I don't know. I auditioned uh, to do my doctorate. Cause now I'm just like, okay, there's only one way to get this job done. I need to get a doctorate. Um, I auditioned for 
uh, James Snell. Yeah. Um, and, and the main reason I was even interested in UMKC is that one of my best friends from grad school is this guy named Pablo Sambuesa. Yeah, I remember Pablo. And, and Pablo was at UMKC and I visited Kansas City and I sat in with some band and Bobby Watson was there. It was at Jardines and Bobby gets on the mic and says, well, Brandon doesn't know it, but he just auditioned for UMKC. You were on that gig, dude. I think I was there. I was, yeah, I was there. I think it was a big band gig. You, I don't remember, but anyway, so I'm thinking, okay, well, Zach's there. He's cool. Sam Wiseman's there. He's cool. Bobby's the teacher. Pablo's there. This town has all these gigs and all these places and jazz history. Okay. Well, I'll audition for percussion. I auditioned with Dr. Snell and it was not a good fit. We, I just had some really different uh, thoughts on things. Uh, mm-hmm. My audition went, my, the audition went well, but I really, this is exactly what you said a minute ago. You got to find something, you know, if you're going to go do that, do it with somebody you're really going to get something from. And I just felt like, you know, when he said that I wouldn't have time to do any of the jazz stuff, was like, well, then that's not the reason I'm coming to this school. I, that's the reason I wanted to do it. So mm-hmm. I left the audition, went back to the embassy suites right there in Westport, got a phone call from the blues guitarist that my dad had been touring with, uh, Jimmy Bratcher. And he said, hey, Brandon, I heard you're moving. I'm doing an, uh, a couple albums and some tours this fall. Would you be interested? So I basically had a gig yeah, right away Yeah, yeah. and um, taught, it, taught at a high school, Shawnee Mission west for a number of years then taught at a i ended up in another high school teaching gig just like the one in new mexico that we built a recording studio um but that second year this is where it gets kind of weird bobby called and asked if i would join the faculty to teach drum set and it was a little awkward the first few times i saw dr snell because (laughs) i no, no harm. I just, it wasn't a good fit for me, but right. it was weird. It was like, now I'm a colleague right? with handy quotes. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And I and like, so then I had, I'm teaching. I had graduated by this point, I think. Um, yeah. You were gone. Yeah. I or was, you were still, you were in town. Right. I was still in town, but I was out of school. Um, so like that, um, that adjunct position teaching drum set in the jazz department was basically your first college gig, right? Yeah. So like how informative was Bobby and the way he ran that department um, in terms of how you wanted to shape yourself as an educator and kind of the, the philosophy that you wanted to pursue? Great. This is where we enter... Chapter two, the Bobby Watson appreciation ceremony. Um, <laughs> I'm ready. So we, we, we mutually love the man. He's, he's a mentor, a father figure, a best friend, a monster, mon- just, yeah. I mean, he's, he's one of the living legends. So sweet, so humble, fierce with business when he needs to be. And we'll let you know. So when I got in, I met with Bobby and I said, so what kind of things would you like uh, me to focus on? And of course, I'm here's my curriculum. I've already, you know, I've already I've got all these things in mind. And Bobby says, I mean, this is no shit. This is just, you know, Bobby just off the cuff. He's like, 
man, Brandon, I don't know. Um, you know, one thing is these guys need to learn how to switch from sticks to brushes. And then he just kind of went off on that for a minute. And, and I, and I realized it's like, Bobby is not a gatekeeper. He's opening the door. I mean, he's got the doors wide open all the time. Mm-hmm. He's not the type of professor that is, well, let me tell you how it is. And so he let me really do my own thing. I mean, it was, we would talk about some students here and there, but everybody's working their butt off in that program. Mm -hmm. So um, Brian Stever was a student, Zach Sanders, Ryan Lee, um, Matt Leifer. um, Oh, Phil, uh, Phil Wakefield uh, was a student there. Yeah. Um, Your buddy, Joe. Oh yeah. Signed up for lessons, but then never, he, he, he forgot that he had signed up. It was like a typical college kind of fun thing. And we became good friends at Explorers later, but it was kind right. of funny. It was like, hey, hey, Joe, I don't want to give you an F. Uh, how do we do this? So anyways, I, I taught all those students. I, I, and and, and our, here's a Ryan Lee thing that is similar to the drum line. Um, I went to Bobby and I said, you know, Ryan, you know, th- this kid can play anything you put in front of him and, and he's, he might be the best drummer in the entire town. Right. Like, and he's he, just like, got he can so play, much. He can play any instrument you put in front of him. Like he's just yeah. almost a savant like sort of musical talent. It, and I would be in the same position if I was put in like if I was put into lessons as Ryan Lee's teacher, I'd be like, I, I got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what I learned from talking to Bobby and then also uh, Clarence, um, you know, at Penn Valley, uh, another really great percussion educator, these older mentors in the city, what I learned was, you know, one thing that I can do is that I've actually listened to probably more music because I've been alive longer. Right. And so it became more about those kind of things. And Ryan was at that time pretty much way into Ronald Bruner, the young jazz giants with Kamasi Washington Mm -hmm. and like that, that new, which is kind of cool that that style of jazz is now almost the, the standard of, you know, it, 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 it wasn't as it, it wasn't like old school, but so, so I'm there. Then Dan Gailey calls, on the 100th year of the invention of the bass drum pedal in 2009. <laughs> and uh, my daughter's on the way. Another great Bobby thing. I'm on a gig with Bobby. He's like, Brandon, how's that baby coming along? Because he knows that my wife's pregnant. And I said, man, I don't know what I'm going to do, Bobby. I just don't, I don't know how, because anybody that has kids, before you have kids, you, you're you like, how's this going to work? And Bobby said, just wait for that phone to be ringing off the hook. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, because multiply and prosper, Brandon, multiply and prosper. Your phone's <laughs> going to ring off the hook. And he was right. Like the phone went crazy. I got the KU gig, the Venice hip hop musical that right. predated Hamilton that you and I both worked on together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then I go to KU and now I'm like their first actual drum set teacher. So putting my curriculum together and my philosophy of, teaching and and everything that that I'm doing at KU now I'm trying to serve the kid that thinks they maybe can't do it hmm. I I am there to just blast sunshine and possibilities and 
one thing that we've done, um, my percussion, my drum set studio is the same size as the percussion studio. Wow. At K at KU now. I'm I'm also I started with four students and now I'm a full associate professor of practice. So I've got a it's it I I did that rare thing of going from adjunct to full time. Um, wow. It's a long contract. It's a multi year contract. It's not tenure which is fine with me because I would rather be teaching than being in committees. And I'm not going to trash talk any of that because those committees are very important. I don't have the patience necessarily for the, how long things take right. like that when I would rather work with a student that I can see results and, and help them. So, and that's a good point. Like I, I think anybody entering a college music program as a student or, uh, an educator, like most of them are pretty slow moving ships. Like yeah. they're headed in a direction and it's not that they can't change course, but man, a, a lot of, uh, <laughs> well, here's an eye opener for folks that might not under, you know, really, understand how long it takes to process, you know, I learned in graduate school, um, when I was studying with Scott Nay and doing a percussion pedagogy, uh, one-on-one class, they're scheduling concerts on the calendar three years in advance. Mm-hmm. Those don't, those don't move. Right. I mean, you're, you're, you're planning so far out that, Oh, you want to do something big? Well, plan for three or four years from now. It's not going to happen this year because there's no flexibility in everything happening. So and they're scheduling like guest artists and clinicians and that kind of shit, like almost as far in advance. Right. And the budgets are that far in advance yep. to make it. So, so what's happening at KU is it started off, we had six combos. So that means we can have a total of six drum set, uh, folks. Let's say, that after this this uh, chat today, you just get crazy and decide, Brandon, I want to do my doctorate and I'm coming to KU. <laughs> well, if that would happen 15 years ago when I first started there, you would have to outplay one of the six kids that's there unless I have six kids. And if there's six kids there, I'm sorry, there's no opening. Right. And that, you know, kind of like I know Yale only accepts like two students a year for their graduate program. It's completely paid for, Mm -hmm. uh, to, but, but, you know, so what we did was we started making contemporary and pop ensembles. We created a steel band. So these are all opportunities that more drummers can be involved and not just playing, you know, miles prestige label era. And so I was going to ask, like, what is what is your perspective on the very real notion that some collegiate jazz programs are really kind of like museums (laughs) of like very straight ahead bebop and, you know, some big band um, and and not much else like that stuff is useful. But in terms of being able to exit that program and, you know be on a scene in a city and play a wide variety of gigs. Um, You're right. And it, and it's, it makes sense because the orchestra is the same, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're going to play Scheherazade for our snare drum excerpt. Right. There is some movement to newer things. We just got a, a really great new faculty at KU, Sam, um, and he's from the Van Sice 
um, lineage. Mm -hmm. It's our third percussion professor that came from Van Sice. Um, so I, the younger guys will know more about, you know, maybe there's newer excerpts, but I, I think the museum piece part of it is what everybody's been hanging their hat on for so long. And if a student is going to go to a school where, I mean, look, I came from a college that had no scene whatsoever. And then I moved to New Mexico and I'm getting the call to play with Kenny Werner. Mm -hmm. So for me, records and headphones and a good teacher is all I needed. I've had students, former students think like, hey, should I go do what you did? And, and a lot of students, I'm like, no, you need to go to a city where there's stimuli. Right. Um, right. I had it in my that's I had it in thing. my house. I mean, my dad was doing it. So I, it was kind of like. And you're a self-starter, like no yeah. matter, both as a performer and an educator, like somebody could just drop you on the moon and you would create, a, <laughs> you would create a program and you would like find some gigs. <laughs> like it just, right, yeah, it seems to be sure. what you do no matter what. Um, and then once the gigs are all full, I would pass it off to someone else to do it and I'd jump and go plant more seeds. Right. 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 But for people yeah. who aren't a self-starter, like, like you said, for those students who are, you know, uh, have doubts about like, maybe I can't do it. Um, I think, you know, some, uh, some college programs, whether they're classical or jazz, can, um, you know, fail to give them the push and the nurturing they need. And they like they might put them on a conveyor belt and say, here's all the shit you need yeah. to learn. But if if the kid that's is, common. Yeah. That's and it was com common. And, with and, me. and, like, that, and that's exactly what you're going to do as a, a math major. Right. That's what you're going to do in certain programs where that because that's the academic model. Now. Uh, Chris Myers is a buddy of mine from back when I used to tour with Particle and Quixotic. And mm -hmm. you just did a podcast with him. Yeah. Uh, you guys were talking about academia. And, and I, I think this is an important topic more folks should talk about. And when I listened to the podcast, I was thinking like, oh, man, you guys are right on the money. And, and what I want to say is that some programs are starting to open up and become more accessible. KU is... Um, very, very soon on the rise. I mean, I've got students, I've got a couple of kids from Texas that are going to audition soon that, I mean, this one kid sounds like Chris Dave. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And in, in my head, I'm thinking, oh man, if this kid will study with us, if he'll be in these programs, he's already got that, but let me show him all these other things. So then when the phone rings, he's got all those abilities and, so my concept in drum set, world percussion, there are more gigs for drum set than any other percussion instrument. I mean, it's just, it's, it's true. And a lot of them, they will feed you dinner. And some of them you get paid. <laughs> um, but, but the concept of, you know, in my head, I'll, I'll give you the super fast, quick and dirty um, this is my quick and dirty thing. You're a college freshman. You come in, you haven't got a whole lot of jazz stuff going on. The first thing we do, uh, we do some Paul motion transcriptions. And that's because I am a more open, like I, I want, I, I want, I don't want the student to learn right away a bunch of rudiment 
things. I want to, I want them to hear this open yeah. through composed Paul motion thing. So that's on purpose. And then we're going to do walk and cool and cook and steam in the prestige records. Right. And that whole concept, I mean, miles was, he just made those records in a couple of days to get out of his contract. So he goes in the recording studio and then, you know, kind of blue came after that on right. blue note, but, right. and then the, and then the great Tony Williams, Herbie, that band, anyway, uh, that prestige record, those records, that's exactly what you do. If you're a standards drummer, you call a tune, you play the head, you take solos, you play the head out. And so, you know, and all the, obviously Philly, uh, ride symbol is, is yeah. a big thing. So and everybody, start- so, uh, just to stop you for a second, like everybody points to kind of blue as kind of, you know, just that's, can I make a, can I make a, a, a public, um, confession. I've never listened to kind of blue start to finish. <laughs> I, I, I never owned the album. Now, yeah. funny thing. It still sells like 4,000 units a week. It's still like the number one selling record of jazz. Yeah. I've um, listened to it start to finish maybe once or twice. And I've, I've referenced, you know, different tunes a bunch of times, but to your point, I think the prestige stuff with Philly Joe is, the blueprint for what bop drumming yeah. is that's just well, like if you're playing in a club if you're playing in a band that's gonna start doing bigger venues like dizzy's in new york and the dakota and minneapolis and dazzle if you're doing like blue room if you're doing like a showcase kind of blue is more like that those are polished arranged right things but we, yeah, we'll start with the Philly Joe stuff, and then we just start going down the lineage of drummers. And not what I'm doing is I'm trying to figure out, okay, this kid needs some Ed Blackwell in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this kid need like let, let me see. And sometimes it's, I mean, for me, it's a it's 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 like a laboratory. You know, this this really great drummer that came that graduated a few years ago named Donovan Miller. Uh, Donovan became viral. And if you look up hashtag KU drummer, you'll see Donovan. Mm-hmm. Donovan's got it at the time. He had a, a pretty healthy Afro couple, you know, five, six inches. <laughs> he's, he, um, at, um, he's got glasses. He's playing drum set in the basketball band and he's cleaning up at the end of a song. And then you in basketball band, especially division one KU televised stuff, you got to stop like right then because the announcer is on a clear comm. And uh, well, in this video, he stops playing and he kind of looks like kind of mean mugs the camera. And uh, but anyway, Donovan's sort of famous. He as a student was into a really specific style of music coming from Minneapolis and certain drummers. And so what I did was I showed him stuff on the complete other side of the spectrum. And I kept telling him from the beginning, I said, Hey, don't stop doing that stuff. He was like, Sput Sirite is, was, was his, his goat at the time. And I'm like, man, keep shedding that and do that. Make sure you're still getting time in on these other things. And so, you know, start with the Philly Joe stuff, but then it also something I started doing this year um, I'm way into recording. So, um, and I, I work, uh, as a, I guess, endorser brand partner with, um, Audix microphones. Mm-hmm. And so I have these great microphones and a studio set up in my, my drum studio at KU. So this past year, the kids all got drumless play along tracks. Everybody got the same one. 
And then the next week they had to come in and kill it as if, Hey, here's a hundred dollars to play this track. Right. You know, we're, we're, so I feel. So you like kind those, of, you kind of played producer engineer guy and brought each student into like, okay, hit record during their lesson. Yeah. As I'm not going to teach a student how to become Instagram viral making their videos, but I want them to know how to do those. I mean, there's a drummer from Kansas City right now, Zach. You should check this guy out. You should call him. Do an interview. Ryan Carr. Okay. This dude started making Neo Soul like one-minute songs in Kansas City. And he wears like the same outfit with a bucket hat in every video. Huh. And it's all vintage drums, vintage gear. And he'll be like, bat, and then the next camera shot is him playing a kabasa. <laughs> and then the next shot is him playing like sleigh bells uh -huh. and just doing that from his home in Kansas city, got the eye of a couple producers and he just finished producing three songs for usher. Good God. And played drums and played drums on usher's, uh, tiny desk concert. Wow. So to, to, I mean, all of these stories are what inspire me. And what I'm doing as an educator is I'm trying to show, the students say, hey, well, look at what this person did. Like, what do you what do you want to do? Right. Where do you want to go? Right. And so I, like, I as an educator, how do you sort of strike a balance between because um, I, I would imagine with with some students, you have to kind of rein them in and get them a little more focused with others. You have to expand their horizons. Right. If yeah. they're like super focused on a certain thing, it's your job to be like, well, you know, this thing, too. And hey, this other thing. But if they're all over the road, then you've you've got to be like, okay, let's just you know narrow it down. Let's get good at one thing for a minute. And uh, like, have you, you mentioned um, the student who was like super into Sput and and all this modern stuff, and you kind of had to hip him to the more straight ahead stuff. Have you had students that were the opposite that came in just like bebopping their asses off, and you were like, okay, let's listen to some music from this century. You know what's yeah, you know what's weird about it? I I don't it it surprised the heck out of me, but it's much harder to expand the horizons of a bebop head kid hmm. than it than it is the other way. And maybe I mean this, this is my experience, so it's not this is not a truth, but in my experience, I was more into rock funk fusion yellow jackets was my bag um for that you know will kennedy for for me i came into jazz a little bit later with some different teachers like swinging funny thing is i played blues my whole life i started you know i was on i was in a van touring with a blues band my dad was in at 14 yeah i was miss i was missing school and you know it was march one year where it's it's march madness we're in a hotel we're eating fried chicken i'm like dad this is it man and i'm literally <laughs> thinking you know because i'd already been to nashville and seen studios that he was doing stuff in and you know my house half the home was a recording studio so growing up with all of that it's like man i'm already doing it and i'm i'm probably at the time thinking like i don't even have to finish high school i'll just do this and then right Dad shut the TV off, took my plate of chicken and said, no, this is not it. You have to go to college. You can mm. do a lot more than just play $100 gigs. And for the children listening, yes, the $100 gig has not changed with inflation. <laughs> it's <laughs> but, still there. Uh, somebody, uh, so, uh, I forgot who it was, but I heard somebody years ago referred to those as uh, the Rain Man gigs. 
Oh, and I was, wow. Yeah. I, at first, I didn't get it. I was like, Rain Man gig? What do you What do you mean a Rain Man gig? And he said, about $100. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, how much am I really going to make after I play the... So so the student that comes in that's like super bebop, the, the, this is what I think. I, I'd love your thoughts, too. The student that has all that together has already made a pretty heavy commitment to this path. Mm -hmm. So let's say, let's say the student comes in and they just, man, they sound like Philly Joe. They got all this together. Well, the first thing I want to do is be like, okay, let's not listen to Philly Joe. (laughs) Like let's, let's purposely not listen to Philly Joe and we're going to Roy, Roy Haynes. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to start hearing some, some more open ideas. And then obviously I, I love how beautiful and sometimes simple Paul motion can can paint a landscape. And He's so, somebody I got to listen to more um, because I'm hip to him, obviously. It, but like I've been I've been rolling this concept around in my head of like how how do I play jazz without the jazz vocabulary? And like so many drummers have done it. Like like Roy started to do it, and Paul Motion mm-hmm. really did it. Right, just like playing, like totally in the jazz idiom, but his drumming yeah. is just so open and so fluid. There's, yeah. So, do anyway. you know? Do you know Tommy Crane? A really fantastic drummer from New York. I think he's living in Montreal now. Yes, um, I know that. I know that name. He's been pitched to me for an interview, and I have to follow up with uh, his agent or manager, who whoever contacted me. But I know of him. Yeah. Well, he's a he's a friend and and a just amazing drummer. And when he and I first started hanging out, uh, he would come to New Mexico. There's a great guitar player that lived there, and and Tommy and I would play drums together. And what we realized was I had all this technique and vocabulary, but I didn't know, and and he didn't really have all of the technique and vocabulary. But he played so much better and so more fluid, and so those experiences of he and I sharing, you know, just like this, I mean, this podcast is a gold mine for, I mean, I, I've, I've received so many texts from people saying, Oh, you got to listen to this podcast. I'm like, I kind of, I actually know the guy, <laughs> but, um, that's cool. But any, but just the sharing of ideas. And what I realized was I need to kind of unlearn some of these things. Chris Myers and you talked about that a few weeks ago is, you learn all these things and you kind of have to unlearn them. Mm-hmm. And so for the drummer that has all the vocabulary and it's just like happening on one hand, they've already made it. And that needs to be acknowledged and appreciated, not squashed. Right. And I think that's what a lot, a lot of unsuccessful or just not my style of teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and so trying to open them up. I, I'm in, I, we, we do some transcribing of the electric bebop band with Paul motion because it opens up so many things sonically. Also, you got two guitars, two saxophones. Um, they're all, there's some free kind of stuff to it. Yeah. But, um, I also teach, you know, for like how, how I've kind of found my voice. It actually came from world percussion. It, it wasn't necessarily drum set. So, right. And I I was going to ask you about that because like coming to Kansas city, um, you were like, obviously played a lot of drum set, but on almost every gig, there was just this, like off to every side, you had hand drums and all kinds of little finger shit. And, um, 
Yeah, it's just it's called it's, ADHD. <laughs> it's called it's called I can't have just one thing. Right. You know, I did end up going to a, I did a lot of gigs with John Brewer where I just played kick snare hi hat. Um, but yeah, all the world percussion stuff with you know if 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 you if a student is really fo- got, ha, let's t- let's take the bebop kid that has all that together. If we spend um, a month studying. Uh, different Tala, different uh, conical Indian, you know, different um, cycles where you start feeling this cycle as a song form and it might have 38 beats. Mm-hmm. It might have, have you done an interview with Dan Weiss yet? No. Because that, that'd be a fun one because uh, he could go there. Yeah. He could totally... Um, but you know, so so it's almost like, hey man, you've got a really good jump shot. Quit doing the jump shot. We're only gonna do backwards, whatever. You know, just I'm trying right. to think as far outside the box. You know, what's what's the other thing that you could work on that then would give us these results? And how I learned this was an interview I did, literally twenty. 20- years ago and someone asked brandon so you're so eclectic and all of your world blah 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 like um you play all these different styles and uh for the record i'm still studying all kinds of different world music things i can't stop it's i we're doing these programs with drum safari where we go into libraries and we're teaching kids about all of these instruments and every library I'm like finding new things and learning. And, um, but I, 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 this person asked how, you know, I came up with my, my sound and sound like me. I didn't really know how to answer the question. And as I was talking to this guy on the radio, I, I kind of came to the realization. It's like, Oh, well, I play like that because I spend hours a day on other instruments that are not a drum set. Mm -hmm. And then, and then when I go to the drum set, I try and kind of keep a different headspace going to where, you know, and like the guitar playing helps playing in pop rock type things to hear an arc of a song, you know, and, you know, trying to do the Chad Cromwell listen to the song once, play it once, and it's perfect, and there's an arc to it. So you know this story. I played with Kevin Hayes quite a bit in... in in New Mexico, and I was a Bill Stewart just geek yeah, for I was, everything. Bill I was Stewart too. <laughs> had my drums tuned just like him, right? And um, I've talked on the podcast a lot about how I spent a few years in Kansas City as a Bill Stewart clone, um, and it just reminded me, like when you talk about you know the the hypothetical kid who just comes in there sounding like Philly Joe, um, it's like okay, great, awesome work, but now. How like how how can you be more than a clone? How can you process yeah. that sound and that influence through your own um, through who you are? You know, because like you can't be Bill Stewart; it's taken. Um, so I had to spend. It's some t- really fun. It's really fun. <laughs> yeah. It's like it. It's like a kickflip. <laughs> 
now that you got your kickflip, can you do something different with it? Or is it, okay, well, now that you can do it, what's next? Right. So the two things that changed me, and it was heavy, 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 heavy stuff. So now chapter three, the heartache. Um, I listened to way too many podcasts. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is, uh, what so, is What is chapter four? The revenge? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Sell all the drums and become a banker. Um no, a realtor. That's the new job. That's the job everybody's going for. Um, so I'm playing with Kevin Hayes. Kevin Hayes is one of Bill Stewart's best friends, and they've made dozens, if not you know, 20, 30, 50 albums together. I am hanging with Kevin Hayes, and I'm listening back to my mini-disc recording, and I kind of sound like... I mean, I'm hearing me with the way he plays, and it's like, it's like a dream. It's like... I'm in the box now. I'm like, I'm little Bill. And in my head, I literally was, maybe if I'm good enough, Kevin will call me if Bill can't do a gig in Spain. You know what I mean? Right. I'm thinking all these things. And um, two things happened. The first thing that happened was I loaned my drums to Billy Hart at the Outpost Performance Space. And I went there to drop the drums off and Billy tuned the drums up so high that one of the lugs actually cracked and is still cracked to this day. And I just leave it, whatever. Um, but he cranked the drums so high pitched that when I got the drums back, they sounded weird. And I thought that's Billy Hart. I'm not going to change the tuning. I'm going to get used to this tuning. So that's one thing that happened. Um, when I dropped the drums off, Billy had me play the drums so he could go out in the house and hear him. And then he started asking me, hey, what were you doing there? And what were you doing there? And I left thinking like, wow, Billy Hart likes my playing. He was asking what I was doing. I find out later, Tommy Crane, who studies with Billy at the new school, and he and I are pals. And Tommy says, well, Billy asks a lot of questions because he just wants to know what you're thinking. It's not that he doesn't know what you're doing. And it's like, oh, he bamboozled me. And uh, so I'm already kind of in this headspace of like, okay, Billy's got my drums tuned i go play with kevin kevin says hey could we talk you know later maybe maybe call you later and i'm like yeah sure we were doing gigs but we were doing sessions almost every other day at his house in santa fe and he calls and he says you should stop trying to sound like bill stewart and i'm on the other line and this is what i said okay <laughs> I mean, I literally was just, I, I mean, I, I, it, you could have told me that somebody just stole my identity. I right. mean, and, I mean, literally. Right. right? And so, so like, and I'd, I'd imagine what's going through your head is like, well, if I'm not going to try to sound like Bill Stewart, what are my options? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And at that time I was way into Ojos de Brujo, uh, which is not a jazz group. It's like a, a flamenco, hip-hop, uh, Indian, eclectic thing. And I was listening to a lot of West African drumming. And um, I was way into tabla beat science, Zakir Hussein's yeah, group. Yeah, that yeah, was like I was transcribing Square Pusher. And so I went down that rabbit hole. And get this, man, I didn't know who – I apologize. I, I live in a hole sometimes. I didn't know who Jojo Mayer was till I moved to Kansas city and drummers were saying, Brandon, you're, Oh, you sound like this guy. I'm like, who's that? Yeah. I went to a Jojo Mayer cl clinic and it was like, Whoa, that's what I did. Right. I mean, I just, 
I just it's it's the similar concept of reverse engineering what the electronic music sounds like and then yeah playing with it. I was playing with a DJ called Megman Manny Okendo. Shout out to Megman in uh, Brooklyn. He had moved to New Mexico right after 9/11, and he's he's a like a live PA DJ. And we had a group where he was doing that. Um, Luis Guerra was playing bass. He's a great producer in LA now. Played with Kevin as well. So what I did was I just went full on. I'm not going to listen to jazz. I'm not going to try and do. I'm I'm sounding too much like what I'm listening to. So I'm just going to bombard myself with all this other creative stuff and then see where that comes out in my playing. Right. And uh, started using a Pandero as a floor tom with a microphone but I didn't have any connections like Stanton Moore, so it didn't get my name put on it. I'm kidding. (laughs) Stanton's the man. Um, But, you know, I was just trying to, I was trying so hard. Well, if I can't be Bill, I have to, I have to be different. So I'm going to, you know, have a little popcorn snare like Billy Martin Mm -hmm. and the dry, you know, complex ride things that are, are sort of Bill, but also Jojo and, uh, Tony Verderosa, I think, was another reverse engineering guy. And then the OG Zach Danziger. Yeah. You know, th- th- those were the drummers that I was looking at, you know, trying to emulate. But um, so by the time you get to Kansas City, like you've kind of you've gone through this process and you don't arrive in Kansas City as a Bill Stewart clone. You arrive as like you kind of. <laughs> You kind of did a cannonball into the pool of Kansas City jazz. Like, dude, how did that happen? I mean, I played with Rob Sheps, and then Rob has friends in Kansas City, and Rob sent an email. And back then, Kansas City, it still does have the Jazz Ambassadors magazine, but back then, the magazine had everybody's phone number in the back of it. Right, right, right. It had everybody's email in the back of it. And Rob emailed like 50 of the top band leaders with this raving review of this great young drum. I mean, I remember seeing the email and being like, Oh crap. Now I got to live up to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, so when I moved, I, it's funny, I moved to Kansas city and I did not go to jam sessions to find gigs. I, I actually, I moved a week before my wife because I had some uh, new Orleans funk gigs with Micah Herman and, um, uh, Lauren Pickford had oh, just yeah, moved. Oh yeah, yeah, Lauren. Yeah, from, yeah. Well, and you, so you got to town, was, and like when when you came to town, um, most of the you know jazz drummers in town, it it was it was all very straight ahead, and everybody kind of had their own flavor. Um, but you you were one of the people that um, sort of like shook the Kansas City jazz scene out of its. Um, I don't know if stupor is the right word, but like you came in and you did organic proof with like the electronic thing. You did a la Turco with all that Turkish shit on every gig. You had like these little hand drums. And so like the drummers and the other musicians on the Kansas city jazz scene were like, wait a minute, this guy, (laughs) like you, you just sort of brought in so many, uh, different influences that the Kansas city jazz scene, it just wasn't on their radar. It's not, that it's not that they were rejecting it. It's not that they were like, no, we're only straight ahead. It's just, it hadn't occurred to them. And when I got there, it was like, wow, what an established jazz scene. I mean, living in New Mexico, 
you 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 it's it's not a very populated state so you kind of you get in with the people you're going to play with and then that's what it's going to be for a long time i mean some of some of my best friends in that area are still playing together and it's it's just like any any city any any place kansas city it was like oh my goodness there's a magazine there's a radio station right there's there's multiple you know, every clubs. night of the week there's yeah. a band um, here's a funny fact. I played the majestic for the first time in my life a month ago. <laughs> I'd never been in the building. That's I'd amazing. never now. Now why it's amazing is because everybody's played there. It's a, it's, it's a very New York ish downstairs yeah. jazz, Basement you know, steakhouse club. kind yeah. of. Yeah. And it sounds good. It's got a house kit. Um, it was Roger Wilder just had a blast the reason I'd never been in there is when I moved, Tommy Ruskin, uh, the late, great Tommy Ruskin had that gig and he played it all the time. And then his subs were folks of closer to his generation, you know, Ray DeMarchi. Right. And, um, God, Ray, I haven't uh, heard his name in some, a while. Some other, uh, Arnie Young, yeah. one of the greatest. I mean, Arnie is one of the greatest drummers in the town that I, a lot of folks don't know about, but he's one of the monster players but anyway i i moved to kansas city and was like oh tommy's got that gig i don't i have no reason to go over there so instead i was talking to the owner at jp wine bar hey what if i did this hey what if i did this right luke sullivan and lester estelle jr had a gig at jp and they were playing backbeat driven it's what you would now call like lo-fi music mm -hmm. yeah you know like low down tempo hip hop kind of stuff. Well, then Luke Sullivan and Lester Estelle both moved to Nashville, and now they work for Kelly Clarkson. Mm. Um, Got to look her up. I can't place who that is. I'm kidding. Um, they're they're like monster players in Nashville. I took the gig over at JP. Did an organ trio with Jake Blanton, who's now in the Killers. Right, of he's all been doing that for rock a long bands. time. Yeah. And then when the budget started getting like, hey, I'm not sure if we can do this every week, I said, hey, let's do, I'll do it for less and I'll do it as a duo. And I brought John Brewer in and we started Organic Proof and doing lo-fi. Right. So and like I've, I've recounted sort of this story um, to a, a lot of different people about how you came to town and how I sort of perceived you at the time. Um, because like you, you got to town and... Uh, I found you to be intimidating as fuck. And in my mind, I was like, this dude's going to take everybody's fucking gigs. And I was like, <laughs> I was really defensive and territorial about it. Um, and of course, it had nothing to do with you because you were just, you know, cool as shit from the jump. Um, but you like what you're saying is is kind of what I now realize you did, which is like you got to Kansas City and you looked around and you were like, Okay, so Tommy Ruskin has that straight-ahead thing at the Majestic. Like, he's doing that. I don't have to do that. And you know, I, everywhere I else even... you looked, um, you, you, saw, you saw that, like, a person or people were doing a thing. And you were like, okay, rather than try to horn in on that thing, I'm, I'm going to go to a different venue. I'm going to play different music. I, like, you expanded the scene. You added to the scene instead of, instead of like, uh, usurping somebody's drum chair or yeah. somebody's gig um and i also i also struggled with some things that might not have 
been outwardly obvious that came from my time in New Mexico. In New Mexico, people were really territorial. And and I mean there there was I I played with Mose Allison, the jazz pianist and singer. Yeah. And a drummer that had toured a lot with Mose came up to me after the gig in the green room and basically was just not nice and and was was like and why did you do the gig? They must not have known I was in town. Like it was really it it was it was like I didn't deserve the call. So I I went to my friend Bruce Dunlap who got me on the gig, this great guitarist um, in Santa Fe. And I told Bruce, I said, how do I, how should I feel about that? And he goes, Brandon, you, you're the one that got the gig. Okay. That's all you need to worry about. Some people are just going to be haters. So I had seen some of that in New Mexico. So when I moved to Kansas city, it was like, okay, if you, uh, here's a here's a, a good example. Ray DeMarchi plays with Joe Cartwright. Mm-hmm. I had looked up all of the musicians in Kansas City before I moved, and I saw that. Well, I'm not going to try and play with Joe Cartwright. Ray, that that guy Ray has that gig. Um, I intentionally kind of stayed away from certain things because it was like, well, no, that's Zach's gig. That's Tim Cameron's gig. These guys are all close to my age, and they sound different. And that's important. That's that's the important thing. And another thing I saw in Kansas City, there were a certain amount of drummers trying to do a similar thing. So here's another confession. Hmm. I ordered, for the first time, I ordered my first drum roll, Swish Knocker for the jazz band. Okay, <laughs> why does that? why is that a silly thing? In Kansas City, there everybody had a Swish Knocker to the right because, you know, Tommy Ruskin and Todd Strait did that. Yep. I don't want to be Todd Strait. And, and Todd was the, he's probably, I mean, arguably the heaviest jazz drummer associated with Kansas City and, and um, you know, besides Harold Jones and uh, Basie and, you know, different things. But, you know, and, and maybe now there's even more, but, but Todd was really such a specific thing. It was like, okay, when Todd plays a solo, he just serves it on a silver platter. It's per it's everything the dude plays is just brilliant. It's, right. It's, and, it's really disgusting. <laughs> and so easy, so easy to play with. And so it's like, okay, when I solo, we're going to go to Mars <laughs> and I don't know how we're going to get back. And like, I, I just, I, I gave myself permission to go there. And then on one occasion I played with a, a Kansas city staple, uh, I'll go ahead and say it. I, I was trying to think if I should share. It was a Carrie Strayer straight oh, ahead yeah. gig. The late great Carrie Strayer. Was it at Benton's? Carrie's, was it upstairs at Benton's? No, it was Blue Room. Okay. It was a. It was with an artist out of town, and he was so excited to have me play. And I was the new drummer in town, and I did get quite a few gigs that were literally people just wanting to find out who was the new guy. Right. And. Um, I was ready to let them know, <laughs> you know, crash, man. I mean, I, I like the sound of things falling downstairs. Yeah. I want to mimic that. Yeah. I want to play in Bill, you know, the, the Billy Martin, you know, soundscapey kind of, anyway, I'm on this gig and it's really straight ahead. And I was arrogant and young and I didn't like it. And I, I kind of thought in my head, well, I've been doing this and I've played with these people and, you know, I 
had done the hardcore jazz thing for years in New Mexico and gotten to some very heavy gigs with players 10 times my ability. And I just thought, you know, well, this is who I am. So on the set break, Carrie says, Brandon, I think you need to just, you know, hold it back a little bit. And instead of respecting my elder, which is really so much of Kansas City's history and why the jazz scene is so strong is because respecting our elders and having leaders like Bobby and Carrie and Tommy Ruskin and all these people. Instead, I told Carrie, I said, yeah, man, I, I told you I wasn't the right person for this gig. I mean, this is how I, this is how I play. I mean, I, I literally was just a, a, a jerk and I never got called from him again. Yeah. And that was okay with me. I, I didn't, I wouldn't have wanted to do the gig. And there were, uh, there were actually a few other people that I, I just felt like, you know, and, and, and even now I don't want to go play the gig that makes me, um, I drove away from a Benton's gig once. See, this is, this is not cool. And I did get help and I did talk to people then, but I, I think it's important to talk about, I was driving home from the gig and I was seriously thinking like, well, what if I just go off in this ditch? And then I, you know, I don't want to die. I'm not, I'm not, it's, it, these aren't suicidal thoughts, but it's like the gig just was so shitty and it's only for a hundred bucks. And what if my car could get totaled and I could get a settlement hmm. and then maybe if I was injured, I wouldn't play for a while. I mean, I was just having these really dark thoughts and I realized I cannot do that gig anymore. And the re what, what was bad with the gig was it was all about the hang and not about the music so much. Right. And I mean, Benton's is your prototypical steakhouse lounge sort of background gig. It depends on who, it really depends who's on the gig, too. Right. So, this, whatever the gig I had just been on was just not at my young, arrogant, perceived level of greatness. Right. And every song, every song finished was, every song you finished was, yeah, man, yeah, cat, sounds great. And I'm thinking, no, it doesn't sounds like shit and you you missed you you skipped the a again it was a a b a form and you went a b a b and it's like and then you got lost on my solo i was taking it way too seriously yeah yeah and, and that's, way too personally oh gosh yeah that's dude for years if you came and sat and you're talking to your girlfriend while i'm playing in my head you're obviously talking about me <laughs> like i for years i just i i had all that baggage and yeah. you know the 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 lesson to learn from it all is to just enjoy the ride enjoy the fact that you can do this i was going on stage a couple of weeks ago with kelly hunt great blues artist one of the greatest female blues artists alive um she does the blues cruise she had some like billboard top 10 hits in the 90s and early 2000s and it's kind of stressful i just had to learn all these charts real quick and and then go play and right before we walked on she says let's just give thanks that we get to do this and we're not you know in this part of the world right now where maybe something isn't going well and i think that's that is the life force of of everything is so i get to hit things yeah i get to bring this joy to people the the drum safari program that that we're touring with right now is i've got a, a van and a trailer with over 300 inch instruments the kids learn rhythms by mnemonic device so this summer we're in the ocean 
So it's sea turtles, fantastic sea turtles. So I tell, I talk about the <laughs> sea turtle and then we learn sea turtles, fantastic. And then we learn great white shark, snap, snap. You know, we learn these different rhythms. Then we pass all the drums out and they're playing together and you're seeing the parents interact. There was this big, you know, probably construction worker kind of dad, mm, kind of gruff. Yeah. And he came and he sat with his kid and he turned into a three-year-old <laughs> yesterday. And it's just like, those are the experiences. And the thing they don't know subliminally is, well, the sea turtle rhythm is actually conga de comparsa. It's the carnival music of Cuba, you know. Right, right. The great white shark snap snap is three, two song clave. Yep, yep. And... um so there, like you, you mentioned, you know, this, we, we've all been given this gift, right? We get to hit stuff for a living. And I think that particularly when we're younger, that puts us in this, uh, mindset of like, we're kind of obligated to, um, say yes to everything that comes along. And that's what landed you in that Benton's gig that you were hating. Um, and I, I think what, um, what, what you've realized and what I've realized is that, you know, be, being given the gift of, um, doing what you love for a living um, means that you should do more of what you love, right? If there's, yeah. if, if there's an opportunity or if there's some gig, whether it's a one-off or a tour, like if you know, it's not in you, if you know that it's, it's not what you want to be doing um, you know, you're not obligated to say yes. The fact that you've managed to not sell fucking insurance for a living doesn't obligate yeah. you to, um, suffer through shit. Sometimes you need the money and you got to suffer through it. But, um, you know, you've, you've created this drum safari thing. And I also wanted to ask you, like, so you, you talked about the first few years you were in Kansas city and kind of the, the role that you occupied in the space that you've created for yourself. You've been there for what, 15 years. Yeah. Oh, six was when summer of so, 06. Yeah, like, oh, 16 almost. So like right now, yeah. How, how has the space that you occupy on the KC scene, changed over the years because now you're obviously much more heavily involved as an educator you're doing this drum safari thing like what about sitting behind the drums uh you know on the casey scene like what what uh role does that play in your musical life these days these days it changed a lot over the years and and i think you made a really good point i think a, one really important aspect that i think you guys are serving the public at large with this podcast is uh, mental health mm -hmm. of being a musician. And, and that's such a, a big thing that when I was growing up, it's, people didn't really talk about. I had a teacher that talked about it. I, I not everybody does, but these kind of things. Uh, and I also want to say the Benton's gig that, that I hated part of it. It wasn't my gig. I was subbing, <laughs> right? for the person that was the perfect fit for the gig. So whenever I subbed it, it that, that was part of it. It was, it, I, I kind of knew this, this isn't a long-term thing. Why am I even doing it? Mm -hmm. um, in Kansas city, I, I worked with Quixotic, the Cirque du Soleil group for a number of years. And that opened me up to a lot of different opportunities, creating, drum sculptures and writing pieces for the symphony. We, we did some pieces with the Kansas city symphony. 
the jazz group thing. I had a quintet that we made a few records and um, I was just done. I, I it's kind of like I, I drum safari and KU are the only two things that I've done consistently. Mm-hmm. Every other type of group has, has kind of come and gone. And when I left Quixotic, I joined particle, the jam band from California that then relocated to New York and then we played with like string cheese incident folks and you know major cities big you know with that band i played the fillmore and san francisco and but like the jazz thing happened i played a lot with dj's and that was kind of my bag for a while in 2000 like 12 i kind of i quit i i i was attempting to quit everything cuz i just kind of hit a wall and more opportunities came out. Um, one thing I am happy to, you know, share, it's important for everyone. But one thing I did in 2011 was I, I decided I wouldn't uh, drink at all and, mm. and, and play gigs. And um, just I, I just needed a reset. Every, everything just I didn't know where I was going. And so over like five years of kind of those things happening, the jazz group things changing, um, KU built up. Where I'm at now with the KU J- or Kansas City Jazz Scene is if it's someone I want to play with and they call, I'll say yes. Uh, I'm in a new band called Relativity Brass that's a New Orleans brass band that is my bread and butter. I just love playing second line stuff. Yeah, that's and, cool. Um, funky funky things but it, it's kind of an all-star group with you know everybody in the band is a heavy player um there's a great saxophonist named adam larson that just moved to kansas city he's a donnie mccaslin uh protege yeah uh, lived in new york for 10 years i'm playing a gig with him um our mutual friend christina corvino has oh, yeah. a, a has a, a one of the hippest clubs in town it's a high class uh, supper club you know that that has a stage and yeah um i'm not actively pursuing gigs really so i my place on the scene now if it was from my perspective is man i'm the one encouraging you to go have a blast i'm the one calling you after i saw the video of something because uh, I didn't go to the gig. I I rarely go out to shows. I'm just having a blast with my kids, and I, I cook a lot. I'm oh, cool. addicted. That's why the hotel has to have a kitchen right. where we're staying. Yeah, yeah. Um, we made ziti pasta and uh, pan-seared steak last night. Ooh. All right. But, um, so, but, but I'm, I guess my I'm not really playing a lot of gigs. And, uh, but like you're, you know, you're not you're not playing a lot of gigs in the sense of like you're you know putting the drums into the car and driving to a venue, um, but you've done what I think most of us want to do, which is just like figure out a, a busy, fulfilling musical existence. And for you, that entails a, a bunch of stuff like teaching at the college, yeah. doing this drum safari thing, and yes, putting the drums into the car and driving to a venue once in a while. Um, but for you know. For other people, that that busy, fulfilling musical existence is putting the drums in the car five times a week. And, and I used to do that. Right. And I and I and I, I am I'm getting that fix with my drum safari. I mean, 
the cases that some of the drums are in on these kids shows are cases that have been <laughs> at the Brooklyn Bowl. Right, you still get the load you know? in load out experience. <laughs> yeah, so and so I'm I'm fit and trim yeah. and <laughs> Yeah. But uh the, and the other bit at KU when I when I left touring with Particle in 2015, we had just done a three-night run after fish shows in Miami. And um I, I left the band and I went directly to the Dean at KU and I said, Hey, I just uh, left this touring group. That was a considerable part of my income. You know, I'm, I'm only half time here. I'd like to do more if it's possible. And here are some course topics that I could potentially do. And one of them was music business and entrepreneurship. And he said, well, what do you think about this? And I said, well, here's a syllabus I already wrote. I mean, I literally had done all of when when I get an idea for something, I build it all before I present it because I I just have to. I got to get it done. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And in that meeting, the dean said, "Let's do this." And now that program, uh, I, I don't have the exact numbers, like, but it, I mean, it's hundreds of kids every year going through this program where it's a music business course and then an entrepreneurship outreach course that has an internship equivalent. And these are not music majors all these are students from all over the map. And, and so what is, what's happened is my serving the music and playing the instrument and loading the drums in the car is now fulfilled with you're a student in my entrepreneurship class. What do you want to do? What sounds awesome? Let's talk about it. Right. What are the things that like I just and going that, ba- I mean going back yeah. to uh you know what we were saying about how, you know, basically I, I view what you're doing at KU as you trying to be some of the changes that you want to see in collegiate music. And it's hundred uh, percent. Yeah, like it it just it strikes me as um as a really holistic approach to um you know, preparing students to go out and do shit, right? Like you're not, you're not putting them on this conveyor belt of this skill and that skill and that excerpt and this excerpt and this record and whatever. It's it's more about like, you know, kind of in the Bobby Watson tradition, like just giving students some, um, some more all purpose tools to then use to do what they want to do. Um, and not kind of predetermining their path for them. Dude, and the life force of that is what does the student have to teach me? What is the thing that they're getting into that I don't know about yet? Right. You know, uh, teaching music business, and it's 2022, and I started the program in 2015, and the ball dropped in, you know, 2010. You know, Instagram wasn't even around yet. Right. And then streaming has overtaken our, our physical copies, but now physical copies and, and, you know, really, uh, like, like the, the handmade things and the Patreon and the, you know, all of a sudden for the first time, students will say, you know, the music business is trash and there's no way I could ever do anything. And it's like, it's easier now than ever before to find people that love what you do, Yeah. but you gotta, you just gotta find the people that love what you do and don't worry about the folks that don't. Right. Because there are going to be, 10 true fans, 50 true fans yeah. before you know it, a thousand true fans. And I mean, the, the amount of people that are financially and holistically healthy 
doing music in groups that you have never heard of is amazing. Right. I just right. It's completely I, I, it's I, I completely just, fragmented now, um, and and that's. A, a bad thing in the sense that like it's it's harder and harder for people to have common experiences sort yeah. of or common reference points but it's a good thing in, in the sense that like like you said it's really easy to find a small group of people that are all about what you do and i think it's great advice just for the average drummer too like in today's music market you cannot be everything to everybody you just right. can't and whether personally or musically there's going to be a lot of uh people who just aren't into what you do or you're not into what they do and that's okay yeah so yeah the 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 other bit is the the location can really be anywhere because you could be everything that the that everybody you could be everything to everyone in a pretty small town Mm -hmm. where you're the big fish and there's nothing wrong with that. Yep. I know I know a lot of big fishes in small towns that every day they're doing something they're so excited about because they were in that small town environment, they were able to create opportunity. Yep. In in bigger cities, I mean, I, I personally don't think one city is better than the other, whether it's a big city or a small city. I, there, a lot of people get into these city wars of like, well, our scene's is better than yours. Or this scene's better than that one. Or, right. I mean, I talked know, about tier, it. Tier one, you know, New York and L.A. It's like they're not comparable. Right. And I talked about it, it with it, Chris Myers it, two weeks ago. Like it's, you know, the same way we were talking about finding a college program that suits you, that aligns with your values and your goals and your style. Like you have to find the city that does that. And that might be New York. It might be fucking Boise, Idaho. <laughs> But right. like you can do it. You can you you can be you and and sort of um like we were saying, find a way to be busy and fulfilled uh doing what brings you joy. Yeah, man. That's that's the goal. Don't call me if you think you're gonna completely change your entire life path and move to Alaska. If you're, if you're on the fence, don't call me. Cause I'm going to encourage you to do it. <laughs> I, had, I had a, I had a friend recently, two, two examples. Uh, one friend moved to Hawaii and another moved to Taos huh. and they both, they both were being told that it was a crazy idea and you shouldn't do it. And they're both happier than I've ever seen him. You know? Yeah. It was great talking with you, man. It was great seeing you again. Uh, and great. You catching too, up. Zach. Thanks. Thanks a lot for doing it. Really appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. And thanks to your, your buddy. I mean, I, I really do think this is one of the best podcasts on the planet, uh, not just cause I'm a drummer, bless but you. man, so much, so many valuable stories that then that person driving to their job gets inspired. Um, I had one student or one, one drummer tell me that one particular episode totally helped him with his anxiety hmm. uh the, the rod elkins episode. oh yeah man and, God, rod, and so a... i mean these so you guys i mean this po- this podcast is is you know you're having there's breakthroughs happening that uh you know i, I think you you know you're, you're doing a really good thing so thank you great to see you appreciate it man let me know next time you get back to kc will do There you go. Brandon Draper. Pretty amazing how much music that guy is carrying around in his head at any given time. Thanks to him for sharing some of it with us. 
Next week, Matt Krause will be talking with L.A. drummer Ryan Brown, who plays with Dweezil Zappa, among many others. Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, play pretty, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.